12 members of a youth football team and their 25-year-old leader entered a cave after their football practice in northern Thailand. It was June 23rd, 2018. And as they made their way deeper and deeper into the cave, it began to rain heavily outside. Soon the cave was flooding and their route to safety was blocked. Through sketchy plans that they had mentioned prior to the practice, parents and authorities eventually learned where they had gone, but they were nowhere inside the cave to be found, and the water levels were rising rapidly. News began to spread around the world that these young boys were lost and were likely already drowned in the cave or perhaps starving deep inside the cave somewhere. A massive search was mounted. Diving experts flew in from all around the world. Equipment was rushed to the mouth of the cave. Ten days later, when all hope seemed to be running out, they were found. But the rescue was risky. It was costly, and it could only be carried out by experts with the greatest knowledge and skills. People all around the world watched and prayed as 24-hour news channels beamed continuous images of the rescue efforts. You probably remember this. On July 10th, eight days after they were discovered, all the boys and their leader successfully exited the cave. There is something about a dramatic rescue that touches deeply, even touches us deeply, even if we don't even know any of the people involved. It's, it's like we're wired that way, to feel the dangers that other people are in and being threatened by, and to sense the character required and the cost and the risks that are involved for anyone who sets out to rescue those who are in danger. No matter how safe and sound you feel, the Bible describes a world where everyone is in danger. The danger we face is the worst kind of danger. It is the wrath of God being poured out on all people who've rebelled against him. But who could rescue us from the wrath of God? This is wrath that we deserve because we have brought it on ourselves. Only God can rescue us. God himself. The God who's infinitely holy and angry against that sin is also the God who is infinitely loving and kind. He is our judge and he is our rescuer. We have brought curses on ourselves through sin, but God is determined to bless us, those who trust his promises through a dramatic and costly rescue. We're going to see that rescue enacted in the life of Abram in this text this afternoon that we're looking at in Genesis chapter 14. God has chosen Abram, and as Abram continues to walk by faith in the land that God has promised him, he begins to act and look more and more like God himself. All people who have a deep trust in God's promises over time become like God. When the world looks at people of faith, they can begin to see what God is like. 
in the Old Testament when particular people are depicted as having faith and trusting in God in different ways, they give us a glimpse of what the God-man, Jesus Christ, would one day look like. That's one way that we see Christ predicted in the Old Testament. Of course, you all are familiar with predictive prophecies where we hear words that predict about uh, a son being born to a virgin. That's prophecy. But it's also prophecy when we see these people in the Old Testament that make us think about Jesus. The theological word for those people that point to Christ is types. They are types pointing to Christ. And in our passage this afternoon, we're going to see two types pointing to Christ. We're going to see Abram pointing to Christ, and we're also going to see a mysterious man named Melchizedek pointing to Jesus. Remember that last week we saw Abram separate from Lot, his nephew, because they had both become so incredibly wealthy, there really wasn't room for them and their herds and all the servants that they owned to live in the same place. And so Lot picked the land to the east near the city of Sodom, where wicked men lived. And so Abram was left with the land that God had promised, the land of Canaan. Before we read our text, let's pray and ask God to give us insight into his word. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you reveal yourself in your word. We know that when we look out in creation, you've revealed yourself there as well. But when we see what you've done in creation, we can only see that you're good and that you're powerful, even that you're loving but we can't see how to escape the condemnation that we deserve because of our sin. Praise you that you have revealed yourself in your word. Lord, we pray this afternoon that you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, before I read the entire text, I'm going to tell you what the big idea is for this chapter in Genesis. God's rescue and blessing come through God's chosen man. God's rescue and blessing come through God's chosen man. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to chapter 14 of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible, chapter 14. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> 1 through 12. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer. But in the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cato-Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in Sheva-Kariathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. 
Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Well, I hope you got all those names and all those places. And if you're wondering, that's exactly how they should be pronounced, I think. The key is just say it with confidence. Well, these verses begin a section really stretching all the way to verse 16 that can be titled, God's Rescue, God's Rescue. These are just the first half of the verses under the sermon point, God's Rescue, but they set the stage. And, of course, you could be forgiven if you feel confused with all the names of those kings, the people groups, and the places packed into these 12 verses. I want you to know I practiced this. I practiced reading this. Let me try and clear up any confusion for you about what these verses are actually describing. Verses 1 through 12. First of all, verses 1 through 4 tell us that there are four kings from the east led by a certain king, Kedorleomer, of the land of Elam. Elam is in what is present-day Iran. It's near the northernmost part of the Arabian Gulf, so right there near the border of Iraq as well. The king of Elam had forced the five kings who ruled the cities near the land of Canaan, so we're going to call them the kings of the west. They had forced them to serve them. And so they paid money for 12 years in order to remain at peace with the eastern kings. Okay, so this is kind of like um, the king's mafia. You know, they say, you pay us money and we'll protect you and we promise we won't come and crush you. That's kind of how it worked. Well, then the five kings, including the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, rebelled and they refused to pay off the eastern kings anymore. That was in in the... 13th year. Well, that didn't make the eastern kings very happy. And so they've come to make war with these kings in the west. Four kings from the east versus those from near the promised land of Canaan. But the author wants us to know just how strong these four eastern kings were. They are exceedingly strong, incredibly strong. And so in verses 5 through 7, we read that they've conquered six nations by the time they arrive ready to fight the five kings of the West. They're on a winning streak. No one has been able to stand up to them. And in verses 8 through 10, it doesn't even seem like a fair fight with the five Western kings because they just scatter and run. Some of them and their men fall into what verse 10 describes as bitumen pits. Now, those are tar pits. Tar is that that very sticky, 
gooey substance that comes from oil deposits below the Earth's surface. It's incredibly sticky and gooey. Now, we've already run across this word bitumen back in chapter 11 of Genesis. Bitumen was what the nations used to make bricks in order to build the Tower of Babel. But verses 11 and 12 tell us the facts that motivate the rest of the chapter and the story there. Lot, the nephew of Abram, was living in Sodom. Not just near it. If you remember from the end of chapter 13, he had moved his tent near Sodom. Well, we get to chapter 14, and he's in Sodom. And so he and all that he owns, including his possessions, his servants, and his family, they get captured by the four eastern kings. And then the eastern kings take all that they've won through warring, and they begin a return trip to their homeland, which actually happens to be where Lot and Abram were from, that region of the world, Mesopotamia. But now, no one would take these kings lightly, of course. They're on an unprecedented winning streak. Eleven nations conquered. I think they're pretty confident. And they're powerful. And they're even richer than they were before. No one's been able to defeat them. But their one mistake was that they take the Hebrew man named Lot and all of his family captive. And it's a mistake because Lot has an uncle who is loyal and loving. Let's read on, beginning in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. <coughs> Abram is living in the land of Canaan, and he's made a treaty or a covenant with these three Amorite brothers. And when he hears what's happened to his nephew Lot, he gathers up 318 trained men, and he heads north to rescue him. And if you read all the way to the end of the passage, the very last verse tells us that in addition to those 318 trained men, the three Amorite brothers join forces with him here. But the focus is on Abram and his men. They are the core of the rescue force. Now, when Abram's forces catch these four eastern kings in the north, they spring a surprise attack on them. They divide their forces and attack them in the middle of the night, and they defeat them. They rout them. After pursuing them all the way to what is present-day Damascus in Syria, Abram then returns to the land of Canaan with all the possessions and all the people, including Lot and his family. They've been rescued. Now, three things I want to point out to you here about Abram. First of all, Abram's growing power. I'm not sure how you picture Abram in your mind, maybe an old man leaning on a wooden staff, 
standing outside of a tent in a dusty, dry desert area with a flock of sheep grazing in the background. Well, if that's what you picture, it is much, much too small. You see, Abram had defeated all these kings who had been on this unprecedented winning, winning streak. Abram had 318 trained men, men who know how to fight and know the ways of war. We don't even know, and there's probably other men who weren't trained that were in his possession. Can you imagine Abram's camp? I mean, there weren't just three or four or five tents. No, there would have been hundreds of tents filled with hundreds of people, men, women, and children. All these men who go with him, who are trained, they were born in his household. Abram had grown rich and powerful through God's blessing. The second thing I want you to notice is Abram's courage. Abram counted the potential risk to himself and his men, and he set out to rescue his nephew Lot anyway. He was brave, he was courageous to go and fight for Lot. And thirdly, I want you to see Abram's love. Abram demonstrated deep love for his nephew Lot by rallying his men to fight. He, he could have reasoned that Lot had it coming. I mean, Lot had made a bad choice to go and live near the city of Sodom, now even inside the city, which is a wicked city. And his reasoning would have been right. He could have said, ah, Lot got what was coming to him. But love often overlooks the mistakes of others and sacrifices for them regardless. Abram was God's chosen man to rescue Lot. Jesus is God's chosen man to rescue us from our enemies of sin and death. Abram is acting like the powerful, courageous, and loving God that he worshiped, and we worship him too. When we see Abram the rescuer, we see shadows. We see an outline, a vague outline of God's ultimate rescuer, Jesus. Each of us has chosen sin and rebellion against God. Sin has, had taken us captive before we knew Christ. We were enslaved. No matter how we reasoned that we could do whatever we wanted, the truth was that we could not. We always sinned. When we did what people might consider good deeds, we did them for our own glory, not to honor Christ. And certainly there were bad deeds that we tried to hide or rationalize. Either we said they're not that bad, or we may have even taken pride in our bad deeds before we knew Jesus. But they were wicked, whether they were hidden or we were proud of them. We were captives to sin, and our sin brought us spiritual death. You know, if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. You're here listening to what God is saying to us through his word. I wonder, though, if you think that we're crazy when we speak about being captives to sin. I mean, it, it might sound a little crazy, but I wonder, have you ever felt the futility of changing yourself, really deep down permanently changing yourself? I mean, 
people can lose weight, they can exercise more, they can stop procrastinating, they can add a good habit here or there. But consider sin. Can you never lie or bend the truth ever again? Can you, can you decide to never, ever speak another harsh word against another person or even think it? Could you keep a vow to never lose your cool ever? Captives. That's what we were. We were captives, and so are you. But God, who created us to worship him and have life in him, he loved us by sending Jesus Christ, his only son. Christ, who was full of power and courage and love, just like Abram. And Jesus came seeking us. He left his father's side. He took on flesh and entered our world. He was the only man to ever walk this earth and not become captive to sin and death. When Jesus opened the book of Isaiah in the synagogue, he read about himself this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty for the captives. He closed the Torah and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to save captives. Jesus was that army of one that came to reclaim us. His death on the cross was the cost he paid to redeem us. And once that payment was made, when we admitted our captivity to sin and turned to trust in our rescuer, Jesus, we were freed. I mean, can you imagine when those rescuers first emerged deep in the cave and those young boys saw them, do you think they said, no, we're not really in trouble. You all go on back out. We're okay. No, they wanted to be rescued. They recognized that they were captives. And so we need to rescue and recognize that we're captives as well. freed from condemnation when we trust in Jesus. We're freed from sin's dominion when we trust in him. We're freed to live for him and to please him when we trust in him. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, this message that I've just told you just now. But you should know the rescue is still ongoing, actually. Jesus' death on the cross is enough to save anyone that he draws to himself. But Jesus is still setting captives free. Jesus is still waging the war, fighting the battle. It's still going on. Jesus spoke cryptically to some of his persecutors at one point in time, and he said, the strong man must be bound and his house needs to be looted. Jesus is rescuing captives from the strong man, Satan. And it happens any time a person turns to Christ in faith and puts their trust in him. And one day, one day the rescue will be complete and he will return as the conquering king. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is our story. Captives rescued by Christ. 
Are you remembering how you were a slave to sin and, and how that news that Christ could rescue you finally broke through to you? Are you meditating on Christ's power? Are you recounting to yourself his courage? Are you getting to know the depths of his love for you day in and day out? Boy, I can guarantee you those young boys will never forget their rescuers. Oh, how much more we should remember Christ. We can see our Savior better when we meet him in his word. We can learn to pray prayers of praise in response to what you or I have read in the Bible, and that helps us grow to know him better. As you read the Gospels, I encourage you, recount his excellencies back to him in prayer. Listen, it doesn't, those prayers don't have to be long. They don't have to use flowery language. Simple and short will do. Reading good books about Jesus and the gospel will deepen your understanding of our deliverer as well. And learn how to encourage one another to speak about it here in when we gather for church or throughout the week when you see one another. Ask each other questions like, what are you learning or relearning about Jesus lately? When was the last time that you told the story of how you came to Christ? You might be a little rusty on it. Oh, brothers and sisters, tell that story over and over. Ask one another over and over. I want to encourage you, when you do tell your story, be clear about your sin. And be clear about when you turned to Christ in faith, even if it was a season. Be clear. Just like Abram foreshadowed the Messiah who rescued us, we point to him when we share the good news of Christ with others who are still captive to sin and death. And so sharing the gospel with others, it requires courage and love. Courage and love that Christ has poured out into our hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who might you set out to see rescued by Christ, by praying for them, sharing the gospel with them? Let me suggest something practical. Keep a list tucked in your Bible of three people that you want to be sharing Christ with. Maybe you could list their names inside of your church directory. They should be three people that you actually have contact with on a regular basis. Look, it is wonderful to pray for people who are far away as well, but I want to encourage you to make sure you have at least three people close by that you're praying for to come to Christ. Pray for them. Pray for courage and love to well up in your heart such that you disregard any risk to yourself and you set out to share the good news. Pray that God would give you opportunities to begin conversations with them about spiritual things. Pray that you won't be scared and stay silent when those opportunities come. Pray that God would help you have maybe a key question that you might spark a spiritual conversation with them. Something like, tell me about how important faith was as you grew up. 
or tell me about your spiritual background. Courage and love filled Abram. Courage and love filled Christ as he came to save us. Pray for that same courage and love to fill us as an evangelizing church. The true story of God's rescue of Lot through Abram isn't finished, though, and so we see two differing responses in Abram to the two kings who come out to congratulate him now that he's returned to the promised land. And so read along with me, beginning in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Well, these verses can be titled, God's blessing. First, we saw God's rescue, and now we see God's blessing. Abram's return to Canaan and specifically to this valley of Sheva. In verse 17, it tells us that it's called the King's Valley. Later in Israel's history, the city of Jerusalem would be located near it. And it's appropriate that Abram returns to this valley because Abram is on his way to becoming a king. He's just defeated kings in battle. He's sort of a king of kings right now, you could say. And the first king to come out to him is the king of Sodom, the wicked city. He's personally survived his army's defeat by King Kedorlaomer, and he's eager to see what Abram's come back with. But the second king is named Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, I want to come back to verses 18 through 20 to focus on Melchizedek. But first, let's consider how Abram responds to the king of Sodom. And so we need to skip down to verse 21 through the end of our passage. And in those verses, we see that the king of Sodom boldly suggests that the people Abram rescued should be returned to him, but Abram can take the goods. That might have been gold or silver or livestock, anything of value. But Abram isn't interested He boldly says that he has lifted his hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, he's pledged his allegiance, his loyalty to the Lord. And likewise pledged to the Lord that he would not receive anything from the king of Sodom so that the king could never claim that it was him that made Abram rich. Other than the food that they've eaten along the way and anything that his three Amorite partner kings want to take, Abram doesn't want any of it. What would drive Abram to reject the king's offer? Well, he wants to have no debt to the king of Sodom. Instead, 
as Abram is blessed by God in the future and he's trusting God for that, he wants God to get the glory. He wants God to get the credit for it. Abram wants the Lord's name and the Lord's fame to grow when the future blessing becomes a reality, not the king of Sodom. Think of how tempting that might have been for Abram. All that wealth, all that livestock. I mean, who knows, Abram might have doubled or even tripled his empire on that very day. But he wants none of it. He wants to honor God who possesses everything and can deliver on his spectacular promises that are far better than anything the king of Sodom can offer. Church, if we walk in unrepentant sin, we put ourselves into debt. Sin will forever keep us in deep debt to Satan and the world. But just like Abram refused to benefit from the king of Sodom when we refuse to walk in unrepentant sin, we're demonstrating faith in the Lord. Then any good that comes about in us or through us, no matter what happens, whether hardship befalls us or we have plenty, and how we respond to it is credit to God. He gets the glory as he should. Who gets the glory when people look at your life? What would they say is the reason for any blessing that's in your life? Do they know? Is it because you've cut corners? Maybe you bent the rules in the workplace or at school? Maybe in your extended family you've worked to gain some kind of advantage over relatives? Are you walking in righteousness no matter what it costs you? Brothers and sisters, beware the temptation to put yourself into debt to Satan and the world by living in unrepentant sin. It may seem like you can get ahead for a while, but Satan and sin always want more. They always want the credit, while the Lord is robbed of the glory that's due him. Abram rejected the king of Sodom, but he received the king of Salem. Salem would later become Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. And so this Melchizedek is the king of peace. Of course, he brings out bread and wine to refresh Abram and his men. And many people have preached on this passage and said it looks forward to the Lord's Supper. I think it doesn't. I think it's merely refreshment for Abram and his troops. But not only is Melchizedek the king of peace, but his name means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is the king of peace and righteousness. We also learn in verse 18 that this Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that someone is called a priest. A priest is someone who acts as a go-between, a mediator between man and God, someone who presents man's sacrifices to God and communicates God's blessings to man. And that's exactly what Melchizedek does here. He blesses Abram, and he blesses God too. Read verse 19 again with me. Look down there in your Bibles. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He's mediating the blessing again that God had promised to Abram back in chapters 12 and 13. Melchizedek somehow knows that Abram has been blessed by God. And with all the mention of possessions throughout the chapter, (laughs) possessions taken by the eastern kings, possessions returned by Abram and his troops, it's no wonder that Melchizedek calls God possessor of heaven and earth. Kings don't really own anything. Sheikhs don't really own anything. God does. Everything is his. His to give, his to take. In his blessing, Melchizedek recognizes the true source of Abram's victory. Verse 20, he says, God Most High has delivered your enemies into your hand. I wonder if when you were reading those verses up above and Abram was victorious, even though we didn't see God's name mentioned in those verses, I wonder if it occurred to you, God was in control. God is in control in every situation. While Sodom waits to give Abram the credit, Melchizedek gives credit where credit is due. God is keeping his original promise to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. And that's why Abram could conquer the kings of the east and rescue Lot. God was with him, and God fought for him. Abram's response to Melchizedek's blessing was to give him a tenth of everything. And so Abram honored Melchizedek above himself. Melchizedek is mentioned very few times in the Bible. This is the only appearance in the book of Genesis And so we need to ask the question, how do we understand this king and priest Melchizedek? Well, King David lived about a thousand years after Abram. He was a descendant of Abram. And David was the first Hebrew king to rule over Jerusalem, Melchizedek's city. David mentions Melchizedek in one of the Psalms that he wrote. We read it today, earlier. Mark pointed it out, Psalm 110. He pointed out that it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And, of course, it's understood to be a psalm about the Messiah, the man chosen by God and sent to rescue God's people. If you want to look back at that psalm, it's in your bulletins again on on page 6. Turn with me, if you would, there. You can either turn in your Bibles. Excuse me, that's page nine in your bulletins. We need to look at this psalm together. The psalm foretells that the Messiah, first of all, would be a king. It mentions there in verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Kings hold scepters in their hand. It also says in verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Kings rule over people. And then down in verse 5, it says, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is a king who is reigning victorious, just like Abram did in this chapter in Genesis. So this psalm, first and foremost, is telling about a Messiah who's a king. But secondly, we see in verse 4 
that this king is not only a king, but he's a priest. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This Messiah sent by the Lord foretold in Psalm 110 would be both a priest and a king in Israel. Priests, kings were forbidden from also being priests. But this Messiah will be both. The other place that Melchizedek is mentioned even more extensively is in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're going to begin studying the book of Hebrews on Monday night this coming week in our Monday night Bible studies. We welcome you to come and we'll eventually get to 5, 6, and 7. But if you look back at Hebrews 6, particularly that portion of scripture was in your bulletin and our reading was there. It's on page 6 in your bulletin. Or you can turn to chapter 6 in Hebrews, verse 19 in your Bibles. There in chapter 6 of Hebrews, the author is making the argument that Jesus is fulfilling those prophetic verses in Psalm 110 by becoming our high priest forever, a high priest like Melchizedek and a conquering king. And then if you'll look in verse chapter 7, verse 3, he points out that Melchizedek doesn't seem to have a mother or a father, and his life doesn't even seem to come to an end. He appears in Genesis 14, and then he disappears. And so it seems as though he has no beginning and no end. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that he's greater than Abram, but because Abram gives him the 10% tithe. The author of Hebrews is arguing that this real man in Genesis 14 is a type. He's a foreshadowing of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, who is both a king and a priest. Someone who will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, like Psalm 110 says, and someone who acts as a high priest offering the sacrifices for men in obedience to God. In Melchizedek, we see our Savior, Jesus, King of kings, great high priest. He is the one who left his rightful seat at the Father's side to come and conquer sin and death, which held us captive. He's our great high priest who will never die and who has offered the once and for all sacrifice of his life, his broken body, his spilled blood. All of that to satisfy the wrath of God against us so that we might go free from condemnation and the coming wrath. In the end, it cost Abram nothing to rescue Lot, but it cost Jesus everything to rescue us. We owe him our complete allegiance, just like Abram pledged in front of the king of Sodom. If you're not a Christian, you can pledge yourself to him and gain access to the great promises of God, the promise of forgiveness of sin, the promise of adoption into his heavenly family, the promise of eternal life, the promise of peace forever in his presence. All of those are yours if you will turn and trust in Christ. Anyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in him, gains those things, and they cannot be taken away. 
Brothers and sisters, you have these things. You have Jesus as a rescuer and a priest. Or as Hebrews chapter 6, 19 puts it, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's our Jesus. Since Genesis 3, there have been two types of people. Those who are the seed of the serpent and those who are the seed of the woman. Sodom and Salem. King of Sodom and king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek. The seed of the serpent lives by sight and the seed of the woman lives by faith. Faith results in God's rescue and blessing coming through his chosen man, Jesus. His name is Jesus. May God give us strength to walk with him all of our days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have sent a deliverer, a deliverer who is strong enough to defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death. We praise you that he laid down his life for us because of his courage and because of his love and because he desired to glorify and honor you, the Father. We praise you that he is our great high priest in making that final and complete sacrifice. And we praise you that he will come again in power to take us and to be with him forever. We praise you for that great hope we have, that sure and steady anchor of the soul. In Christ's name we pray, amen.